The Psalms are the songbook of Jesus. They were the worship songs that he cut his teeth on. They were his choruses. They speak about him in every verse. We come out of a series on the doctrine of the church, a series that was pretty heady, that was more intellectual, that was more explicitly theological in nature, that really stretched our minds. And now we turn this summer in our summer series to the Psalms, the series that doesn't stretch our minds so much as it goes deep to the heart. It goes deep to the heart of our emotions. And so here today we come to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm chapter 3 is traditionally called a song of lament. A song of lament, a song of sorrow, a song of sadness. So, let's read it together, shall we? Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word from Psalm chapter 3. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. Let's give our attention to it. A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! How many are rising against me? Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The Australian show Mythbusters ran for 13 consecutive years and just this March had its last episode. Have you seen this show? It's a great show. Jamie Heineman and Adam Savage take all these urban legends, all these questions, all these myths, and one by one, they go after them to debunk them to see if they're legit. Questions like, just how hard is it to find a needle in a haystack? Or, does dripping water on somebody's forehead really drive them nuts? Or, my personal favorite episode, is it possible to actually fix every problem in your house with a roll of duct tape? It was a sad day in the Almond House when this March they announced their last episode. But one thing Mythbusters does not answer are some of those fundamental questions that you and I have asked about our own hearts and our own lives. And to answer those questions, we don't need Netflix to go watch reruns of Mythbusters. What you need, what I need, is the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a 3,000-year-old myth-busting, precious treasure trove of sacred poetry. And there's a myth that we're going to address this morning because you and I tend to believe it because we've heard it all of our life, and we're going to let the Psalms test it to see if it's true. Here's the myth. Are you ready? I'm going to give you the myth. I'm going to give you the answer to the myth that David gives us, and then I'm going to give you the principle, and we're going to talk about it together. Here's the myth. Will God give you something you cannot handle? 
You've heard that, right? God will never give you anything you can't handle. Listen, we've all heard that. Is that true? Hmm. Will God give you something that you cannot handle? Here's what David says. I'm going to give you the answer, and then I'm going to give you the principle, and we're going to talk about it. Can God give you something that you cannot handle? Yes, he can and does. And here's the principle. According to Psalm chapter 3, God is in the business of giving you something you can't handle to make you utterly and completely and absolutely and finally depend upon him. Because the root of all of your troubles, all of your problems, have been you have consistently applied your own strength, your own performance mechanisms, your own wisdom to solve your problems. And you see where it's gotten you. So, let's look at this myth together. Will God give you something that you can't handle? Yes. What do we see? David shows us how do you process being completely overwhelmed? He shows us what resources do we have when we are completely over our head. And lastly, what guarantees do we have? How do you process being completely overwhelmed? What resources do we have when we are weighing over our head? And what guarantees can be offered to us? Sound like a worthy question? Let's look at it together. Psalm 3. How do you process being completely overwhelmed? Psalm 3, it says, we don't know if Ezra wrote this or another scribe wrote this, a Jewish scribe. It says a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. You remember the story of Absalom in 2 Samuel? Here's the story, if you don't remember it. David became king, and he ruled over Hebron, over Israel. And David ruled for seven years in Hebron, and he had six sons. The first one was Amnon. The third son he had was a son named Absalom. And David eventually, after seven years, goes and he rules over all of the kingdom, Israel and Judah together, from the holy city that they took over from the Jebusites. It was a city that they called the Holy Zion, Jerusalem, the place of peace. And David had this amazing, amazing rags-to-riches story, right? The young, lowly shepherd boy who is chosen by Samuel to be the king after Saul. And David takes power, and he reigns, and he begins to reign, and he has this incredibly sweet season of peace until, until his third son, Absalom, kills his first son, Amnon. And he kills him because Amnon had abused his sister. It was his half-sister. It was Absalom's true sister. He had abused her in a very violent and awful way. And Absalom was so upset that he set his brother up and waited for two years to throw a party for his big brother with all of his sons there, and he killed him in cold blood. And King David, after enjoying this great sense of prosperity and peace, had idolized his son so much, Absalom, loved him so much that he just could not come to discipline his son. His son runs off, and he goes and spends time with his mother's father, and Geshur, and then years later, David says, okay, I want you to come back to the palace. I want you to come home. So Absalom comes, and he lives in Jerusalem for two years, and finally David says, now you can come to my presence again. 
He comes to King David and he presents himself before him and it says that King David kisses his son and reconciles with him. But Absalom by this time had something far greater in mind than reconciliation. Absalom began to hate his father. Absalom began to believe that he was actually a better king than his father could be, more just, more equitable. While his father was in the middle of trying to enjoy his money, taking advantage of people's wives like he did Uriah's. He took his wife and had Uriah killed. Absalom watches all of this from afar and he goes, I could be a better king than that. And so Absalom, after being brought back to Jerusalem, he, he runs off to his hometown in Hebron and he gathers 200 mighty men around him. And the numbers begin to grow and pretty soon word gets back to King David, your son Absalom, who you kissed, has kissed away the hearts of Israel. And they are following him, not you. And they're coming after you, David. And David knows, I've got to get out of this city. And so David packs his belongings up. He lifts 10 members of his family in the temple to keep it. And David goes on the run. The king of Israel run out of his own town by his son who's coming to claim his throne. Listen, I don't know how many of you are being running out, run out of your castle. Probably not many of you. I don't know how many of you have a son who is trying to take over your empire. Not many of us. But you have got things that have overwhelmed you. And you have people who you once thought were very faithful friends who have turned their back on you. And they have cut you very deeply. And you've got circumstances in your life that in a sense have come to overwhelm you, whether it's at work, whether you've lost your job, whether you're one of 50 parents, sets of parents, we're getting phone calls in Orlando, Florida this morning to say, I'm so sorry your son or your daughter has been killed in a mass shooting. You've seen this on the news last night. Whether you're like the parents who get the knock on the door at 2 a.m. and they go to the door wondering who it is and they see a highway patrol officer and they realize my teenager is not home. Like the parents of the Texas football star Bill Mercer. We may not be able to relate to David's issue, but we certainly can relate to it in kind. Maybe not in degree. Maybe your son is not trying to take over your life. But certainly there are things that have brought you to the very end of yourself. The Psalms are full of lamentations. A third of the Psalms are Psalms of sorrow. Isn't that interesting? And unless we learn how to take the psalms of sorrow and process our sorrows of our own life with us, we will not understand the full-fledged resources we have in the gospel. You will live a life of quiet desperation, not knowing what to do with, frankly, a third of your emotional experience. How do you process when you are completely overwhelmed? The first thing the text shows us is that you process your sorrows with sustained prayer. You process your sorrows with sustained prayer. That's what David does. Look at the text with me. It says, O Lord, how many are your foes? After two psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, here we have the first prayer of the psalm. Lord, how many are my foes? They are numerous. Not only numerous, Lord, but they are aggressive. They are rising up against me. 
They're not only aggressive, they're not only numerous, but they're emotionally abusive. They're saying, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Every time you're overwhelmed, whatever it is that you're overwhelmed by, please hear me, there are two components of it always. There's an attack and there's an accusation. The attack goes like this. Whether it's a circumstantial attack because of something in your life or it's a consequential attack because of your sin, the attack goes like this. You once thought you were in control. Your control has been attacked, and now you have no control whatsoever. Whether it's a direct result of your sin or whether it's a consequential attack, whether somebody has turned their back against you that you are innocent in or whether or not it is a result of your own volitional decision to disobey the Lord and you're suffering the rightful consequences of those. You face an attack. Not only is there an attack, but there's always, almost always an accusation. The attack immediately begins to make you think, oh, like, I'm not really loved. Oh, if I don't fix this right now, my life is over. Here, David has been attacked emotionally by his friends in verse 2. Many are saying to my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. That wasn't just spiritual salvation for David. That was a covenant, physical protection of him in his kingdom. And people are saying, David, God's holy covenantal word is no longer good. Do you believe that? It's easy for us to believe that. That in the midst of our sorrows, the very first thing that we are told by David in Psalm chapter 3 is you are to process your sorrows with sustained prayer. I say sustained prayer because, look, David begins to pray. And he interrupts his prayer in verse 4. He says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And then I was able to sleep. One commentator says this psalm shows us how to sleep well in sorrow. I slept. And then David comes back to prayer. He sustains his prayer. Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. And then again, after verse, in verse 8, he comes off of his prayer, and he makes a comment. Salvation is of the Lord. All through the psalm, he's sustaining his prayer. John Calvin thinks that this prayer of David's was only one section of a much longer prayer he must have prayed when he was running from Absalom. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, he actually prays, Oh Lord, would you take Ahithophel's wisdom and would you make it foolishness? So undoubtedly, David must have prayed for far more than just what is here in Psalm chapter 3, but he certainly didn't pray less. You sustain your hope and comfort and sorrow through prayer, through sustained prayer. Will God give you something you can't handle? Absolutely. To make you utterly and completely dependent upon him. Not only will he help you through sustaining prayer, but he also gives you resources. We say, listen, God won't give you anything you can't handle because we assume that we have enough resources on our own, and that's just not true. We don't. That idea that God would give you, he'd never give you anything you can't handle, at the heart of it is a good thing. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right, where God says, when you're tempted, I will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can endure, but I will always provide a way of escape so that you can stand up under it. 
Paul there is speaking of temptation. He's not speaking of circumstances. Sometimes your circumstances can be so utterly overwhelming that you cannot handle it on your own. Yes, you will always have a way of escape in the midst of temptation. But you cannot escape that temptation with your own resources. What resources do we have? What does it say in verse 3? David says, listen, my foes are many, verse 1. They're aggressive. They're rising against me. Many are saying of me there's no salvation in God. They're emotionally abusive. There's an attack. There's an accusation. And then in verse 3, the great contrast. But you, O Lord, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Ah, there's physical protection. You are a shield about me. Literally, it's you are a shield that covers me. The same way we too have protection, not just physically, but we also have spiritual protection. How? You have protection in the midst of all of your difficulties and your struggles and with the covering of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who covers you not with a physical shield. He covers you with the shield of his blood that no attack can ever penetrate, that no temptation can ever pierce through. He covers you with himself. When Augustine was preaching on this verse in the fourth century, do you know what he said this verse was about? He said this psalm is not just about David running from Absalom. This is about Jesus running against Judas. This is a psalm about Jesus Christ himself who sees his foes, his own apostles, running from him as he goes to the cross. And the chief arch nemesis of Jesus, his friend, who he trusted with all of the money, turns on him and he runs. Jesus, Absalom, means the father of peace. Augustine says that it was Judas who looked to Jesus, his mentor of peace, that the moment he turned his back on Jesus, he had no peace whatsoever. But we as believers have our Savior who knows what it's like to be rejected by his friends, and he covers us with his love. He wraps us up in his steadfast covenant faithfulness, and he cares for us. We have a shield. The second resource you have, not only do you have protection spiritually, but you have protection over your identity. David says, you are my glory. I have no temple. I'm on the run. I have no wealth to show forth. I'm in rags. I'm living in cracks and crannies and caves. I've crossed the Kidron Valley. I'm on the Mount of Olives. I am running. And yet, you, Lord, are my glory. It's an amazing thing David would say as he looks over. And the Mount of Olives is just across the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem, if you've ever been there, and it overlooks the old city. And you can see the Temple Mount. And here David is standing on the Mount of Olives, looking over to see his kingdom, his, temp his holy temple, his throne room. And he says, you are my glory. You are my glory. And Jesus protects his identity. The third thing he does, he doesn't just protect him physically, you spiritually. He protects his identity, secondly, the third thing that he does is he protects you emotionally or psychologically. He protects you. Why? Because he says that you are the lifter of my head. You're the lifter of my head. Any of you ever struggled with really deep, dark depression? Don't raise your hand. That'll just make it worse. 
There's a, I talked to a lady this week who I said, how are you doing? And she doesn't go to this church. And she goes, I'm not doing well. I have every mark of depression except suicide. And it was deep and it was dark. And she clung to this verse in Psalm 3, chapter 3, and she made it her prayer. It just came out of her. You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Do you remember the book of Job? Remember the book of Job? He is, his children are taken from him. His wealth is taken from him. His health is taken from him. And he gets into this vicious cycle that depression gets us in because sometimes our greatest sorrows are times when everything on the outside looks perfect and looks right, but there's a profound sadness in us that we cannot identify the source of, and it makes it worse. And there's this vicious cycle that we're tempted to jump into whenever we're in depression. And the cycle very simply goes like this, that when we feel depression, when we feel like the light is being shut out. We just muster up the strength to push on one more day. We just say, listen, I, I, I feel like I'm getting depressed. I know, I feel it. I know it's around me. I feel it. And so we go find psychological intervention and we talk it out. We kind of push it a little further down the ice. But it never really leaves our play. It never really... I'm mixing metaphors, but it never really leaves. You cannot begin to deal with your depression until you allow something from the outside to break in. And what needs to break in? What needs to break in is a reassurance that you're protected spiritually, that you're protected in your fundamental identity in Christ and, and, that the Lord Jesus wants you to experience some of that now. Not all of it, but he gives you hope because he is the lifter of your head. Literally, it means to raise your eyes to the light and you see the beauty of the gospel. Job, you remember the story of Job. Job gets into this vicious vortex, this cycle, where Job says, why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out of the womb and expire? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have had rest. I would have slept. I would have been at peace. And Eliphaz, Eliphaz, his great counselor, says, listen, the spiritual issue is that you're not innocent, Job. You've sinned and you screwed up your life. Eliphaz says, remember who that was innocent ever perished? Or which of the upright were ever cut off? Obviously, you're not innocent or upright, Job. And Job takes this and he takes it in and he looks and says, is this helpful advice? Am I, is there sin in my life? And then he falls back into his depression. I loathe my life in chapter 10. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Who would that I had died before any eye had ever seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave? Are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone, that I may find a little cheer before I go to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadows, without any order, where light is as thick as darkness. He's just spiraling downhill. And Zophar says, whoa, 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 let me help you. And he brings his psychological advice to the fore. Job, your secret is not that you sinned. Your secret is that you need to try harder and ignore it. Just ignore it. Push it back and just ignore it. 
If you prepare your heart, if you stretch out your hands toward him, he says in chapter 11, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell within your tent. And when you feel secure, because there is hope, you will look around and take rest in your security. And Job says, what security? I'm spiraling downward. So he goes through cycle three. I am a languishing stock to my friends. It's a case study in theology. Am I just a case study for your theology? He uncovers the deep side of the darkness, and he brings the deep darkness to light. And Job says, listen, there is more help in natural revelation and looking at the sun, moon, and stars and mountains than from your lousy advice. And somewhere in the midst of Job's despair, in the midst of Job's depression, the gospel breaks in. And he says that without God, there is no hope. And the depressed grope in the dark without light, and they stagger like a drunken man. King David was obviously in a huge, vicious vortex of depression. He could only have been running from his own son out of his kingdom. And here we see the resources that the Lord gives us. He protects us spiritually. He protects our identity. He protects us. He lifts up our head amidst our depression. And the way that he does that is by pointing us again to the beauty of the one of whom the psalm really talks about, the Lord Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, says that we must talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves so much. In other, in other words, you must consider what God actually says to us and read it to us, read it to yourself. Allow something from the, from the outside to come in to help you amidst your struggle with the sorrows of your life. A third of the Psalms are about sorrow. We need to have resources for how to deal with them. And if you're going to begin to deal with them, you have to constantly avail yourself to things from the outside in. Your temptation is going to want to deal with them psychologically. Talking things out is very, very helpful. But if that's all you avail yourself to, you will find yourself again back in that vicious vortex. You've got to let the gospel break in. You've got to speak to yourself more than you listen to yourself during the dark nights of your soul. And do you know how you speak to yourself? You go to community group. And you get with people who are going to remind you of the gospel. You come to worship, even on those Sundays when you just don't want to. Because the Lord uses corporate worship to remind you, listen, look at every person in this room. Every single person in this room, myself included, struggles with the sorrows of our heart that nobody knows about that are deep and that they're dark. And we have got to let the gospel percolate through that to shine the light. You've got to be well-trained in how to do this. The gospel is not just the way into the Christian life. You've got to continue to use it to feed your Christian life. And it's only when you understand that God has given you the resources of his word that you can begin to do that. All right? Does God give you anything you can't handle? Yes, he does. He does so so that you will utterly and completely depend upon him. And stop wearing yourself out on your own self-saving strategies and you will look to him. The only one who can rescue you from the greatest sorrows that you have, sin and death, and the consequences that befit those crimes. The consequence of our sin is death. The greatest sorrow of our life is the truth that one day every single one of us are going to die. Like Muhammad Ali, we are going to die. 
And it doesn't matter what they say at our funeral. It matters what the Lord Jesus Christ says to us at that day. Welcome to my kingdom, good and faithful servant. Or, depart from me, me, you worker of lawlessness, for I never knew you. There's no appeal. There's no doing it again. And that truth that we will one day face death is overwhelming. Unless you know there was one for us that also crossed the Kidron Valley like David did, that also left his holy place like David did, that went up on the Mount of Olives like David did, that faced the same temptations that David did and that you and I do. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, was the one who ultimately won the battle for you over sin and death. So that when you read these psalms, these precious resources for us, you can bust the myths of your life that you begin to believe that take you far afield from the gospel and away from the righteousness of Jesus. And you can say that, yes, God will give you something you can't handle, but you know what? He gives you a resource in the midst of that that's far better than anything you could come up with because he gives you himself. And he reminds you that he protects you spiritually because Jesus has finished the work for you you can never finish. He reminds you that he protects your identity because nobody can snatch you out of his hand. He has you if you're in Christ and by faith alone you place your trust in him. Nobody can take that. Jesus will lift up your head and he will point you to the cross where he will say in the midst of your depression, look to something worse than the darkness of your depression. Look to the darkness over Calvary where your Savior hung for you and died for you. Who Jesus himself, just like David, in as he crossed the Kidron Valley, prayed tears, dropped sweat of blood, and became in the Garden of Gethsemane the man of sorrows for you to help you in the midst of your sorrows. God will give you something you can't handle. But he is with you in the midst of that. And he says, raise your head and look at the cross because that is the power to sustain you through it. Jesus, the one who came to conquer your greatest foe of sin and death. And God will put you against the wall to help you lay down all of your resources that you have so creatively come up with and say, I have no resource except you, Lord Christ. Jonathan Edwards says, it is of the marvelous wisdom of God in the work of redemption that he has made man's emptiness and misery, his lowest state, lost and ruined, sunk by the fall, an occasion for the ever greater advancement and achievement for the glory of God. There is now a much more universal and apparent dependence of man upon God in the midst of his suffering. Though God would be pleased to lift man out of that dismal abyss of sin and woe into which he has fallen and to exalt him in excellency and honor to a high pitch of glory and blessedness, yet the creature has nothing in any respect to glory about. All the glory evidently belongs to God. All is in a mere and most absolute and divine dependence upon the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Friends, Jesus will give you something you can't handle because he can handle it. And he is with you. He has not left you on your own. And he gives you 
this great anthem at the very end. What guarantee do you have? Salvation is of the Lord. It is the heart of the Christian faith. It is not of your doing. It is of the Lord. And what God has promised to do, he demonstrated on the cross for us. And he promises still to do it when he completes it at the end of time. We are saved already, but not yet. And the deep darkness of the sorrows of your days, when you see that highway patrolman at your door, when you go to a routine exam and you find that there's cancer you didn't suspect, when you get the phone call that something has happened to your child, when you are wallowing in deep, dark depression, we want you to know that Jesus is here in the midst of that with you. And he knows what it's like. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So lift your eyes up, Christian, and say with King David, and say with your Savior, the Lord Jesus himself, that salvation is of the Lord. And then lay down your own means of self-saving and look to the cross and place your utter and complete dependence and joy and hope on the finished work of your Savior, who arose again three days later. Arise, O Lord, and save me. And he struck all your enemies on the cheek. He broke every one of their teeth so that sin and death can no longer harm you. Isn't that beautiful? That's the gospel. It is the same yesterday. It is the same today. It is the same forever. Let's pray together. Father, salvation is of the Lord. And the guarantee that we have is that you gave your son for us to make a covenant with your people, to be a sign of that covenant, not of the blood of bulls or of goats, but he gave us the blood of his own son. Lord, help us to be people who know how to use the Psalms as resources because they point us again to the gospel. For you will give us things we cannot handle because you want to drive us into total, absolute dependence upon you because you can handle it. And we, as Paul says in Colossians, are hidden in Christ with you. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please take a moment and fill out the Trinity Connect card, the yellow piece of paper that's in your bulletin, so we can have a record that you've been here, um, and any other information that you'd like to fill out as well. Let's go before the Lord, our, our Lord, in prayer uh, before we take tithes and offerings. Our gracious God, it is good for us to depend on you. You give us all things that we need for our, our life. You took all things away from Job, his family, his finances, and you restored it again to him. I pray that you would cause us with our, our wealth not to hoard it and believe that our safety and our security is in it, but that we would find our hope and our security in, in Christ. Um, and as we give our tithes and offerings, that that would be a token of our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
to strengthen us on the journey, the Lord gives us signs and seals that remind us to utterly and completely depend upon him. That Jesus, the night that he was betrayed by his friends, Jesus, the night that he didn't go on the run to escape, but that he was taken captive for you and for me, the night that Jesus was crucified, beaten for us. He took bread with his disciples and he broke it and he said, take and eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. Because as often as you do eat of this bread, and you do drink of this cup, you show forth the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christ conquered our greatest foes of sin and death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The gifts of God for the people of God, to strengthen us in our sorrows, to remind us that we have hope even in the most dark of days. Let's sing the doxology in praise of our great triune God. Praise God.